This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Talking edition. I guess this could be the playoff fever edition for the Guardians, Terry. How you doing How today? That? I'm doing well, and because of the exciting thing to be able to uh, talk about them, and yeah, it's just it's really cool. Hey, before we get into the Guardians, uh, how was your? You had an event last night at the Medina Library that we told people about. How did that go last night? Well, they had a full room. That was great. Um, fair amount of uh, kind of kind of Guardians questions and. Uh, we took a somebody said well who's what team is going to be the uh, first to win a championship in Cleveland so I just threw it back to him we took a vote uh who do you think won the Cavs the Cavs and and Guardians are like one two I didn't because there was like over 100 people there so I didn't count there but there's like three for the Browns and then the other two were neck and neck so who who did you pick in that I didn't I let them I let them do it Oh, okay. That'd be a good topic uh, for a podcast sometime. We'll yeah, it, it would have to think about that because, yeah. I mean, the as I mentioned to the couple of brave souls who voted for the Browns, because right now I think everybody's, especially that group, was not thrilled about the Watson trade and some other stuff. Um, the feeling is uh, there's, I mean, the Browns are still in the best place to win a title. I mean, Green Bay could win a title. Anybody could win a title in, in that league. Uh, so... It's just a matter of of doing it that way, but yeah, there were. It, it was generally an older crowd, uh, a lot of Browns shirts, not too many Cavs, a lot of a lot of old uh, Indian shirts. So oh, those are always fun. Nice to yes. get out and see everybody. So, all right, Terry, it is playoff fever. The mm-hmm. Guardians just won again this afternoon. We're taping this late Wednesday afternoon. They just beat the Angels, another come from behind win with late dramatics and in the eighth inning today it was uh, jose ramirez hitting a two-run home run to help them win five to three we started our magic number countdown yesterday isn't that something and it's down to 18 mm-hmm. and the white Sox are losing to colorado right now as we speak in chicago in an afternoon game so it could be down to 17 but this team they're now 76 and 65 three and a half games up on the white Sox as we speak and and i think they're five and a half up on the twins uh, and the, actually, the Guardians play the White Sox tomorrow in a makeup game at Progressive Field. But, but this is this is really fun. I mean, this, this is the time of year where you're watching the scoreboard. You got some late inning heroics. The, every game means so much. This is a great time, isn't it? Yes, and, and it, Francona has said a couple times this year, which is true, that um, they can't take any short steps, as he would call it, to, during games because it's not like they're going out and throwing up eight or nine runs because three guys hit a homer. Um, you know, they have to go and you know, lead the league in infield hits. They have to be you know, near the top in, in, in stolen bases and taking extra base um, uh, extra bases on hits, all those things, basically playing it the hard way. And then on top of it, you have to find ways. I mean, they're trying to win this thing with three starters now. Uh, we'll see how that goes, but my goodness, it's just, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, and somebody who has to get a lot of the credit is Terry Francona. And there was another, we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, Terry, but there was another moment where Tito just 
stepped out of the dugout the other night, Monday night, he wanted right. to get the umpires to hold up for a second because they wanted to see if there was a hit by pitch call and they just kept going. And he went out of the dugout and tempers got heated. <laughs> Managers were tossed. There were, there were some, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure some choice words spoken. Uh, just another example. He is going to fight for this team to the finish. And I bet they love that. I bet they love seeing him out there getting in people's faces. This is playoff baseball time. You know, you're getting down to the end. And that, that's mm-hmm. just really, it's just really something to watch how he's handling this. And, well, he's feeling it. You know, I wrote a column about this. He senses something very special is happening. And you seize the moment because in that game, they were up four to nothing. That, then it was tied four to four. And then, then they moved out for one run lead. And he just, he felt his team coming back. And, um, he felt that the umpire also disrespected them. I mean, he was asking for basically if the question should be, if I'm at, I'm sorry, if uh, Andres Jimenez looks like he's probably been hit by a pitch, he's been hit by a pitch because he gets hit all the time. I'm going to look it up right now as we are talking on how many times he's been hit by a pitch. I mean, the answer is way too many for, for my taste. One but, of the league leaders for sure. Yes. Uh, and, Never thought that was a, a great category to, to be hit, to be leading anything. But he, you know, you look at, uh, first of all, that this guy all year has been remarkable. He hits lefties, righties. He just kind of goes and, and does does it basically against anybody. I believe it's 18 times, no, 19, 19 times he's been hit by a pitch. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I want to see something here. Yeah, he's walked 48. He's walked 30 times and been hit 19 times. So I guess it's a way to help your on-base percentage, but it's just a rough way to do it. And he's sitting 300 on the nose. Uh, and I, it's interesting to me, too, like when now when they decide to rest Rosario, today Tyler Freeman played short. So I think what Francona is doing, he's just leaving him uh, and as at second base because why move him around? He's my second baseman, and let's go with that. Yeah, and Freeman had a really nice over-the-shoulder catch mm-hmm. today and a key time in the game. Um, but anyway, going back to Tito Terry, I mean, you know, you've talked on this podcast about covering Earl Weaver back in the day, and I'm always interested in your perspective in terms of history and what this season looks like in the context of that history. Tito's managerial performance this year, how would you rank it among some of the some of the ones you've seen in Cleveland for Cleveland managers and also maybe if – I don't know, other ones, other teams you've covered maybe in your career? Because the the other teams that I saw that went to the World Series, you know, the Indies in 95 and 97, those rosters were loaded. I mean, they really were. Uh, even in 2016, you go back and they had really good pitching, but it wasn't as if, you know, that was the Mike Napoli year and and they had Jose and they, had, they did have um, – Frankie pointed short, but it, it was not a, a team that was, you know, stacked with talent. And they were able to, you know, become within one game of the World Series, winning the World Series. They went to the ninth inning and then losing it in the tenth. And if you recall, that was also when they ended up with three, where <laughs> they kept running out of starting pitching um, as it went along. By the way, before we go any farther, I was, I was just wanted to check this even for my own thing. I was talking about him and S. How about right now, Jimenez is sitting 309 against lefties and 292 against righties. And if you look at his batting averages by month, his worst month was 250. And so he just just rolls along, and it doesn't matter, you know, when you start talking about things like hitting the with runners in scoring position, he's hitting 330. It's pretty remarkable. And to find that, see, they have an emerging star. That's what happens this year. They created a spot for him to play, and he's become an emerging star. It took a little while for our guy, um, Oscar Gonzalez, to get a chance, but they gave him a chance. He's hit four homers the last nine games. He's hit over 300 since the All-Star break. Um, he's a guy, remember, he went into a bit of a slump after he was hot, but he's figured it out again. So you have him taking over right field. You have Quan in left field, and you have uh, Jimenez taking over second base. So then you have your your veterans with uh, Ahmed Rosario at short and and Jose at third. You know they're going to keep messing around with first base with Naylor and Miller. But the big thing there, as you said, Tito's been able to 
as an older manager, it's hard, David, to know I'm going to play all these kids and, and deal with some of those things. But they because they have played so hard for him, I think he's been able to take solace in that. And now it's like he says, this is – he knows – you know, the old line, his line is always every year is different. You don't get to pick when you're actually having a good year and things are calling falling into your voice. So when it happens, you know, ride that horse. I mean, right now they're 24-16 and 16 in one-run games. They're 10-4 and four in extra innings. Uh, their bullpen has been terrific. Uh, and really, other than when – I wrote a column about this after they lost, I think it was six out of seven to Seattle. And that, that was that streak where they lost eight out of 10. And I said, the problem there wasn't so much the guardians. The problem was the Seattle Mariners who were playing as well as anybody else. And, and you, when you run into them like seven times in 10 games, when they're pitching so well, you just look bad. And that, I, I said, I was optimistic because they're rolling back into the central division and, you know, Kansas city and, those teams there, and and now they're back winning again. They've they've won eight out of ten. after losing eight out of ten. They've won eight out of ten. Yeah, and you know Josh Naylor was talking about they for as young as this team is, the youngest team in the majors, they go into a slump, and they and he said we know we're going to come out of it. We mm-hmm. just know we do. And for a team that young to have that kind of bounce back is really something you don't see that very often. Francona keeps a pretty level head about that because. When you're talking to him, he, you start bringing up streaks one way or the other. He's just going to shut that question down. You could, I don't care how many ways you uh, – he's not – he's always like, no, we have to win the next game, you know, and this is what we need to do, and I need to find ways to do it. It's just like today he needed to find somebody to pitch the eighth and ninth innings, um, and he had, didn't want to use Class A again, so there's Karinchek. And by the way, getting Karinchek focused and straightened out, that's one of the amazing things about this season too. Because we've all seen Karinchek go way off the rails into all kinds of different areas. And even this weird thing where they were checking his hair and then he had that bad outing. In the past, that would carry on to other outings for him. Well, it didn't. And I have to admit, even to this day, when Karinchek takes them on the ninth inning, I get nervous. But, you know, there's no reason to frankly feel that way because of how he has pitched. I remember early in the year, he was hurt in spring training. They didn't know where they were going to get him back. And then they sent him down to AAA. And, you know, how would it be when he's coming back? And where would his state of mind be? So, you know, Carl Wills, the pitching coach, and Francona, you know, two old hands with these young guys, uh, it's really worked out. Well, and we've all seen the T-shirts, Terry, the Cleveland against the world mm-hmm. T-shirts. And that Karen Shack thing was just another inc- incident where that, that – dugout is just they like everybody's out to, to stop us from winning this thing and we're yeah. just we're just going to pull together until running get to through the finish line. yes yeah. you, you look at uh at his stats the other guy that i never had a whole lot of confidence in and he has been pitching extremely well and that is sam hentkins and you know i'm looking at now i mean his era is like 265 and uh He's a power left-handed pitcher. I just didn't think that he had the um, control to be able to fill that role. And and because if you ever look at Henkin's numbers in the minors, they're not very good. He was one of these higher picks, but his good arm, but was not the guy. He really didn't produce in the minors. And they've put him in the bullpen. That's always a John Hart old thing. If you have a guy whose arm you like and you can't figure out what to do with him, well, put him in the bullpen. And see what happens, and that's what they what they've done with with Henkins. I'm I'm just looking too. It's you know now it's like 54 innings, 17 walks. So that's only one every three innings, and he's striking out struck out 62, 37 hits. So it's just it's it's really good, really really good. Those are the kind of things that when you have kind of magic going. Yeah, and, and you, you're right about Tito. He doesn't like to talk about anything other than the next game. But I, oh. I, I would be interested, like, where he would, at the end of the season, where he might rank this among his favorite teams or his best managing jobs. Because mm-hmm. this this is not the Boston Red Sox no. of, of 15 years ago. It's not the 95 Indians. It's it's a young team, and they're just all kind of pulling each other along. So I, I thought the I, other I job that he did really that. well is kind of forgotten. But his very first year here, 2013, Granted, that was the year they signed Michael Bourne and Nick Swisher, 
and they had a bottle Jimenez and that. But you go back and look, he squeezed sort of the last bit of juice out of a lot, several of those players. I believe they won 92 games. I remember they had to win the last 10 to make the the, the play-in game or whatever they called it, the wild card game. Unfortunately, they lost uh, to Tampa Bay. But that was a, a really good job because the previous three or four years before – Three out of the four years before he arrived, David, they had lost at least 90 games. And it looked like they were spiraling into where they were going to be very bad for quite a while. You know, they never fell to that 100-loss thing. But, um, see, when they bring him in, that also led to the signing of Bourne and, and, and Swisher. And just the fact that you can't hire Terry Francona and say, we're setting you up to lose 100 games. You just can't do that. And so that forced ownership and, and the, the front office to look at things differently. And another point is this. When they had their meetings, Mark Shapiro was here back then. When Mark Shapiro was here with Eric Wedge, I just think that, you know, Wedge, Wedge owed his career to Shapiro. I I don't think he was going to fight him on a lot of things. Terry Francona didn't owe his career to anybody here. I mean, he did them a favor. The odd thing, and Francona told me that when it became clear that they were going to open up the managerial search, uh, he actually called 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 uh, Shapiro, and and wanted to, to talk to him. He wanted to manage here because he he had been here for a year as an advisor in between. Uh, I forgot where it was. I think it was before he went to the Red Sox, and he got to know Antonetti and Shapiro well, and thought they would be guys he'd like to work with. So I just think him coming in here. So now he has gravitas and pull so that when they want to do something, he can say, no, wait a minute. You know, I don't know about this. And he also came in with a view that wasn't just pure Cleveland. He had the experience of elsewhere. Yet he understood Cleveland because he played here. His father played here and he was an advisor here. So he understood this was not going to be Fenway Park where every day is packed out. And this is not even a baseball town. The baseball fans that are here, the hardcore, are really good, knowledgeable, but the casual fan is just not into it. Uh, In fact, Shapiro said at one point, we laid out everything. I remember he goes, it's going to be a low budget. The weather's awful. He goes, well, the weather stinks in Boston. And, you know, all these. And he said he just really wanted the job. But it did force ownership, David, to say, we have to take this seriously. We can't just tear this whole thing down. And that's why they've never torn the whole thing. They may have cut the payroll, but they've never said, we're out to intentionally lose as many games as we can, like some of these franchises. Well, and we've heard the Browns for years, Terry, talk about trying to get alignment among players, coaches, front office. And when, when they brought Tito in, it just happened. It, everything just fell into line, and they have this thing going now where it's – I think a lot of people around baseball envy what they have going in terms of how they run things, and it's really – it's been something Here, to here's watch. Here's an so. interesting thing about Tito, too, and I've heard this from some of the younger guys, you know, some of the analytic guys and just younger scouts and things, that he makes them feel valued. Where the temptation would be, it's like, look – how many World Series did you win? How many things? That, what are you? You're going to tell me why I should bat this guy second? It's my lineup. Now he listens to it. He does look at the data. He uses. I think he uses just enough so they know that they count. But he doesn't let the data always drive his lineups and drive the way he manages. And that's why his magic is the same thing with the players. He does have an ability. And even when I've interviewed you, suddenly, I mean, he focuses on you. I mean, 10 minutes with Terry Francona, he will make you feel really important, even if he's kind of like tussling with you verbally, which I've had some of those on, uh, on that. It's like, no, but he's, he's doing it in such a respectful way. I mean, he's very firm in what he believes, but he's, you know, the, you also know there's part of him probably in closed doors. If he had to really rip into somebody to get their attention, he'll do it. But I think he also believes that you do it rarely. For, so it has an effect. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, Terry, we're running a little bit late here. I wanted to – this happened since we taped last week, but uh, Major League Baseball announced these new changes for next season. There's going to be a pitch clock. It's going to be set at 15 seconds with no runners on base and 20 seconds with runners. And that's um, 
I think they tried 14 seconds and 19 at AAA this season. So anyway, it's going to be 15 in the majors and 20 seconds with a runner on base. There's going to be limits on how many times you can step off the mound and pick off attempts and all that. And a catcher has to be in the catcher's box with nine seconds left on the pitch clock. And a batter must be in the batter's box and focused on the bat on the pitcher with eight seconds left on the clock. What do you think of all this stuff? There's kind of this purists uh, versus new age debate in Major League Baseball. The purists want to keep the game kind of timeless and as it was. And Rob Manfred and a lot of the kind of progressive owners want to move it forward, shorten the games, make the pace faster. Where do you stand on all this? Good. Make them throw the ball. Make them stay in the box. I mean, when I played high school baseball, or even the one year of Division Three, you didn't step out of the box every single time. You just didn't. It's stupid to allow that. And I love Mike Hargrove. He's a good friend of mine from way back when. But the human rain delay, he was like the biggest offender early on with always stepping out after every pitch and playing with the batting gloves and his helmet and everything else. Uh, get in there and get ready. And the other guys throw it. They're saying, well, if you can only throw over to second. If you can't pick the guy off on two throws, too bad. That's my view. All right. I'm, I'm serious. No, Move I know. Along. I am right there with you. I, I saw this. The first time I saw a pitch clock was down. I went to Norfolk uh, about five, eight years ago mm-hmm. to see the, the Tides play. And they had a pitch clock. And actually, actually Mike, Mike Yostremski was playing that night, mm. who is now in the majors, obviously. But it was such a pleasure to watch that game. It was over in two and a half hours. Yeah. And I think they've found that the average nine-inning game in the minors with this pitch clock has gone from three hours and four minutes in 2021 to 238 this season. I mean, that is a pretty big reduction. And, yeah, and so I think I'm, that'll I, be I a think positive. Major League Baseball is looking for that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to see how they're going to do this lack of shifting thing. Because actually, my, my idea was you could play anybody anywhere you want, but they have to have at least one foot on the dirt. So if you want to stack four guys with a shortstop stand, you know, whatever you want to do. But this is like you must have two on one side of the infield and two on the other, the way I read it. And, and I they all have to they, be on the dirt. And they have to be on the dirt. Jose Ramirez is going to hit like 315 next year because there won't be going to be out in short outfield. Yeah, those rockets he hits. Um, What I hope this doesn't do is get people back into trying to pull everything, though. One of the advantages, if you watch the Guardians this year, is like the other night when – they won that. That was actually Monday night. Quan comes up. He's fooled on a pitch. This is late in the game. The score is four to four. He slaps a single to left field off the back foot anyway. He just makes because they were sh- shifting over a little bit on him. Just whack it through there. Then Rosario comes up and they are p- actually there. They're pitching him somewhat inside because they always play him as like almost a right handed or a left handed pull hitter with everybody on the right side. And he whacks a double down the left field line. Uh, in other words, the old hit them where they ain't. We will for you. We will keyword fans. But um, so I hope this doesn't get people back to just trying to pull everything. And if I hear launch angle, I just want to throw up every time I do that because you know <laughs> let's hit the ball in the air, all that junk. So I'm, I am curious to see how that plays out. That's I think is going to have the big uh, dramatic difference. Yeah, and the other change, of course, they're going to make the bases 18 inches square instead of 15, which anybody who's ever played, I, I don't get it. I don't, well, I think one of the big things is that they don't want guys who are uh, first basemen, especially having their foot on the bag and some guys coming hauling down the first baseline, stepping on your ankle or cl- okay. cleating you. And so it's, it's more for safety, I think. But it, it, this is interesting, Terry. It's going to they're hoping it's going to boost stolen bases because second base will actually second base will actually be four and a half inches closer to first base mm-hmm. and third base will be four and a half inches closer to second base. Uh, because of the bigger bases, because uh, of the of the extra three inches. So I thought that was interesting. So there's going to be a little bit of an advantage. So we'll see if the steel numbers go up, which could be exciting too. Yeah. I mean, that, what you, what baseball's problem was just a lack of action. And not only the strikeouts and walks, just guys, even I was watching Karinchek right before we came on the air. He's behind the mound. He's scratching his head. He's how, you know, he kind of throws the ball to himself up and down. It's like, James, Throw the ball. Get in there. So he's going to have to learn that because you won't like getting a ball, ball, because you're back there wandering around. 
Meanwhile, if you like a guy like a Cosse, if you watch him, he gets it, he throws it, he wants to get off the money. He's not getting paid by the hour. That's not how he views it. The games will go really fast if you and I were pitching, Terry, because the Elms wouldn't have to check our hair, so we could just. That's go very true. Just keep. <laughs> All right, so the Guardians, it's a huge weekend coming up for them. They, Like we said, they have the White Sox tomorrow afternoon just in a makeup game and then five big ones against the Twins. They could really put a nail in the Twins if they win three or four of these games. There's one game Friday, a doubleheader on Saturday, mm-hmm. single games Monday, and a single game Monday. It's a wraparound series. The Guardians are offering some kind of a Tito's twin pack or something <laughs> where you get two games for the price of one. So if you want to check that out, you can. But they're, I know they're hoping for some big uh, some big crowds out there this weekend. So well, The people that have gone out, other than the poor folks I hear all the time with all the rainouts. I mean, one guy, he's, he's tried to go to five games and three been rained out. <laughs> driving from Port Clinton. You know, it's just like, what are you going to do? So, All right. So we'll see how that series goes this weekend. It's a big one. Um, hey, Terry, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the Browns. They're 1-0 for the first time. I, I saw somebody tweet a picture of uh, of the Queen last week from like 1958, and the caption said, uh, the Queen, the last time the Browns won a season opener. It made me laugh. But yeah. Browns are 1-0 for the first time in forever. Not quite that long. So we'll talk about them. You were out at the Donovan Mitchell press conference today down at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, so we can discuss that a little bit. We also have your Faith in You column this week. We have some really good Hey Terry questions this week, Terry, and a lot of them. So uh, we got a lot to get, a lot to get to. We'll catch you in a minute after this break on Terry's talking. Night racing is back at Richmond Raceway this spring. Top NASCAR drivers like Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Virginia's own Denny Hamlin will battle under the bright lights. And this historic track also offers a rocking infield experience with unparalleled access to your favorite drivers and one of the best tailgate scenes around. For a weekend of friends, family, and amazing short track action, head to Richmond Raceway, March 29th through 31st. Get tickets now at richmondraceway.com. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. We're back on Terry's Talking. Terry Pluto and David Campbell from Cleveland.com. All right, Terry, let's talk about the Browns. 1-0, beating the Carolina Panthers. They won Baker Bowl, which is kind of the, the nickname people gave to the team. What were your impressions, Your maybe some of your key takeaways from that week one win? I don't know if you want to start with Jacoby Brissett or something else, but uh, a lot to I'm talk starting about. starting with that 58-yard field goal because I didn't want to talk to anybody else that the Browns lost that game. I really <laughs> don't. And – it has nothing to do with wishing Baker ill. I think if most people have read my stuff, I, you know, I was always, I wasn't a big, huge Baker fan, but I thought he would did a really nice job here overall, and I was hoping he would do well in Carolina. And I believe he's a decent quarterback when he's healthy. And I also thought it was impressive to see how he bounced back after that dreadful first half and everything there and. And, and made it scary, and then here you go. It's going to take the 58-yard field goal to win. And as you know, David, I'm fanatical about kickers because when you have a really good one, whether it's Justin Tucker in Baltimore or Phil Dawson here or hopefully Cade York, they are game changers. And if you're playing this way with Jacoby Brissett, as you mentioned, now your, let's go to your uh, your impressions of Brissett, and then I'll double back on mine with, with the kicking element to it. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, J- Jacoby Brissett, well, what was the saying from uh, a couple of years ago that Juju Smith-Schuster said the Browns is the Browns, right? Mm-hmm. Jacoby Brissett is Jacoby Brissett. Uh, he, he was, what, 18 of 34? For 147 yards, I mean, his yards per attempt was 4.3, which is pretty typical for what he does. He doesn't like to take chances down the field. And I think that's one thing that the Browns coaches like about him is he's not going to be making silly mistakes, throwing the ball into bad places. Uh, One touchdown pass, no interceptions, and a 74 rating. So, uh, you know, Lance Reisland, who does our film review uh, posts, longtime coach at Garfield Heights High School, wrote about four plays today that, that 
kept the Panthers in the game, and two of them were overthrows that Jacoby Brissett had in that game. And I think the coaches can live with that because they know he's not going to put the defense in bad situations. So, I mean, it, it kind of – Jacoby Brissett is who he is, and, and they're okay with that. This is how they're going to win, right? The other thing about Jacoby Brissett is this. If, when he throws long, he's thrown long. His feeling is – and he got – this was started when he was with Belichick in New England. You're not throwing it to the other team. Put it where only your receiver can get it. Now, the receiver – it's funny. I mentioned that to Roberta, my wife. She said, well, the receivers better learn. They, they better not ease up running. That ball's not going to be short unless it gets tipped or something. So we, we even saw that a little bit in the preseason game when he tried to go and he went long. So that's it. They The Browns look at particularly his last two years, or his last three years where he, he started 20 games. He, they were, uh, he had a 9-11 record in there, 23 touchdowns versus 10 interceptions in 20 games. That's kind of the ratio you're going to see here, and that's what they want. Now, double back to the kicker. If you're going to play that way, you're going to play possession football, try to run the clock, all those kind of things, then even three points become bigger. And you, by the way, they scored 26, and the kicker put up 14 of them. Well, and Terry, I was rewatching the game. There was a, there was a spot in the first half, 2-0-1 left in the first half, and the Browns, Stefanski passed up a 59-yarder uh, late in the first half, if you remember, and – then they hit a fit, you know, York hits a 58 yarder to win the game. I, it's going to be, I, I, I'm going to be watching this tug of war between, all right, the analytics say you should go for it on fourth and three, but Cade York can hit a 59 yarder toward the end of the first yeah. half to give you some points. So do you go with the analytics or do you go with Cade York and try and get the three points? I'm going to be really interested watching how that plays out the next several weeks. Actually real early in the first, I remember there's a 53 yarder that they could have went for. But that's where, and I thought Stefanski was right on this, by the way, where he said, I just didn't want that to be the kid's first kick in the NFL. Because, you know, your odds on these 50-some yarders are like 40% or whatever, even with a strong leg. So he said what I wanted to do is let him see the ball go through the uprights a couple times. It's kind of like when you bring a, a, a rookie into his first NBA game that you really don't want him firing three-pointers. You know, let him make a free throw. Let him see the ball go through the rim. So then he was set up to do that later on. But you're correct, David. It's going to be going on because the end, you know, the NBA you always hear, well, three points are better than two. You know, my counter is and two points are better than none. Well, in the NFL, well, seven points are better than three. And guess what? Three are better than none. Oftentimes we've seen teams like the Browns are going to be this year. It's not going to be easy for them to score touchdowns. But it might be easy for them to just beat you up you know, death by paper cuts or death by field goals. Like and that. so that could be a way to play. And that is why um, Andrew Berry, after he missed on getting McPherson in the 2021 draft, and he told me the story that they were going to take him in the fifth round and the Bengals grab him a couple pick, picks right in front, which surprised everybody. Nobody knew they were going to do that. But they had McPherson targeted. They ended up taking Tony Fields' linebacker. So, so this year he told me, no, we're moving that thing up to the fourth round, which is way out of analytics comfort zone because we've got our guy, we picked him, and we're going with it. And you remember, they didn't even bring in another kicker. They just said, they're just going to get Cade York ready. Actually, I was a little surprised on that because what if Cade York pulls a hamstring you know, right before – uh, opening day, like Cody Parkey did a couple years ago. I think it was last year. Nonetheless, he, they, it, and Andrew Berry told me, because I had that long interview with him, and then we talked some of the background after, he wanted, as he called it, weaponize the kicking game. You know, they brought in a new punter. Thank goodness. I mean, the Scottish Hammer was a fun story, but it's a lousy punter. So, and we also didn't see, remember, remember Stefanski's first game here in Baltimore, and they ran this fake punt like their own 22-yard line with the Scottish hammer and that. We didn't, none of that stuff came into play either. So, But it follows into what you said about Brissett and the kicking game. They, they have to work together. Running, kicking, Brissett short passes. Is that rule about not throwing to the tight end still in place, David? Oh, I don't know, Terry. That was your rule that you got passed, so... 
you, you, but you've been, no, I'm just kidding. You, but you've yeah. been pointing that out for weeks so that like, that, that's the rules. So. It must be the rules. It must be that, 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 what, Najoku had one pass thrown to him, I believe. Yeah. And I think he got a good look on another one downfield, if I remember, and it wasn't quite there, but, mm-hmm. um, I gotta say though, Terry, I saw some things Sunday that I was not expecting to see. Okay. I mean, there was a lot of Chubb and Hunt together in the backfield. Yep. There were there were passes being thrown to Nick Chubb. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember how many targets he got. I guess I could look that yeah, up. Yeah, but see, that was but that was he, that was another rule they finally broke. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I mean, he had a he had one catch. It was for two yards, but. You know, they're, they're not running so much 13 personnel, which we've talked about. There's some evolve, evolving evolution going on here with this offense, I think. And that's going to continue, too. But the, the, the first signs were just, OK, well, this is different. And, oh, that looks different. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they're going some different places with this. Is that the sense you're getting? Yes. And the coaches were challenged to do that by the front office. That your offense was not good last year. And the passing game, while they worked on it, um, Obviously, it's going to look different with Watson, but this is your quarterback now. They went out and they actually had a verbal agreement with Brissett before they were able to pull off the Watson trade. So they targeted Brissett to be their backup as a upgrade over Case Keenum. So whoever it was, perhaps, I don't know, was the coaches or front office were not comfortable with running Keenum into those games last year. They wanted to get a quarterback that they would be more comfortable with this year. Um so fine. I just, my view though, is a healthy case Keenum is better than a beat up Baker Mayfield. So, and, and that's often the case. So we will see. I, I do think, and, and Kevin Stefanski was very quick to point this out on Monday that Brissett did make some big throws on yes, that last did. drive. And, and we shouldn't forget that even with the stats that the stat line he had, he, he made some big plays when they had to be made. And, and he could won, have taken so. some bad sacks, but didn't. Yep. And it's all little things that help the Browns win. And I think this is the way you're going to see them play. I think you're right, Terry. And I also think you should trademark death by field goals. That can be the Cade York yes. memoir someday when his yeah. career is over. Death by field goals. So it's just. Oh, and um, by the way, I, before we go on, Terry, I want to mention, uh, if you get it, if you haven't read it yet, check out Ashley Bastock's oh. story on Cade York this week. Um, Ashley is our colleague. She interviewed a lot of people who know Cade York. And it's a story about he's he was obsessed with being perfect in his kicking and his coaches and a lot of his family told him, you can't be perfect. Like enjoy the process. It's a really good read. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out. It's uh, difficult. If you're, if you're a kicker, it's a little bit like being a closer. You don't, you don't have a, a lot of opportunities. And even if you like miss a kick in the third quarter and your team was loses by two, there's, and they say it was a 46-yarder. We had some of that with Chase McLaughlin last year. It's like you will people will circle back to that and go, well, if you just kick that field goal, and it's a makeable field goal. So you have to handle the miss kicked. And that's one of the things that Dawson did very well and the great ones do. Of course, they don't miss that that any that very many, but sooner or later they, they do miss one. And you watched – how he played the wind on that 58 yarder. I could get a little bit into the weeds on kicking because of how Dawson talked to me over the years, but he said the difficult thing when you start kicking more than 50 yards is you, you don't want it to go too high because it doesn't, not only he said, does it not um, have this much distance, David, but the higher you get, the winds become more of a factor. The winds aloft, as the great Dick Cotterd would say. So <laughs> you need to kick more of a line drive. But the problem there is what? What's the problem blocks. with kicking a line drive? Yep, blocks. They'll get it blocked. So you've got to find it's kind of sweet spot where you got enough leg into it, but not too much. And also how it could cut through that wind. Because the farther you kick the ball, the more the wind comes into play. And that is, by the way, a very, very rudimentary discussion of kicking that Dawson gave me. Then he got into some stuff that I got completely lost about. Um, but its uh, he's also right on every single thing he said. Oh, it's a science. And, you know, Kay York was talking about putting a draw on it. It's like it's so it is like a whole science to it. But yeah. Um, all right, Terry. So, yeah, check out that story on Cade York on cleveland.com slash Browns. Um, let's move on to the Cavs, Terry. You were out at the Donovan Mitchell press conference today. Well, what did you see? The remarkable thing to me 
is he had just turned 26 years old. To listen to him talk, uh, it was one of the best introductory press conferences on a major deal that I've heard of any sport anywhere in a long time. Uh, talk about hitting all the right spots. First of all, he says he's a Cavalier fan. We go, well, why is that? And he said, well, LeBron James. He was my favorite player growing up. He said when he was at Louisville playing in, in there and that the Cavs were in the finals all the time, most of his teammates in Louisville were pulling for Golden State. He was pulling for the Cats, and he said, "One, he goes, I ran around yelling, Cleveland, this is for you, after they won. He watched it on TV because he was taunting his teammates. And he just said that he really liked coming here playing. He he did not deny the fact that he would have preferred to have been traded to the Knicks. He's from Brooklyn. But he mentioned another thing he says, and he goes, you know, I've been – at starting from the eighth grade on, I was in boarding schools because he was always playing for these high-level basketball programs. Then he went to Louisville. And remember, he was not a one-and-done. He was there two years. When he came out, he was a 13th pick in the draft by Utah. The feeling was that he was actually probably drafted too high. He was no more as a defensive player there than and an athlete as opposed to the high score he became. Then he talked about hitting another the right tone. He, he knelt down at the uh, altar of Ricky Rubio being the mentor. How When he went to Utah, Rubio took him in, taught him about the NBA, all those things, and how, my man, I'm, I'm back with my man here. Of course, fans in Cleveland fell in love with Rubio, too. He also said they used to call him uh, the Jesus because of the, how he looked with the beard and the wisdom figure. So, I mean, he went on and on on this stuff and about all the people in the airport, how nice they were. You can't fake it. It was way too much in depth, in depth rather. And then he talked about how when uh, he really was on the golf course when he heard the trade was made, he really did get excited. He said, but first I asked who was traded for me. And when he didn't hear it was Garland or Mobley or Allen, he says, that's when I went crazy. I realized we can be really, suddenly is we, and we can be really good. So he said all of those things, and he also mentioned how he thought um, Garland is going to push him to be a better shooter. He says, I've already shot around with him. He goes, and I thought I was a good shooter. He goes, I'm not that good, not like him. So I just sat there and go, this is terrific in terms of presentation. I talked to J.B. Bickerstaff afterwards one-on-one, -on -one, and he said one of the key components for him is that he said, we're going to have to, he goes, I want to keep that defensive personality. We're going to have to work on that because they did lose, you know, the third big guy in marketing. But he said, I also knew one of team chemistry. And that was a big factor is that we really believe Donovan comes in here with the right stuff in terms of off the court, on the court. And media day is coming up in, I think it's a week from Monday. Boy, it is a new world for the Cavaliers with this trade. And, and Chris Fedor, our colleague, has written about just the expectations have changed and the urgency has changed. Like, it is, it's on. It's it was on. fun to so. listen to by the Kobe Altman goes, now i got to understand, this is not just a one-year deal. You know, after, first of all, telling how excited he was to have, you know, possible four All-Stars in that. Uh, assuming Mobley continues the trajectory that he that, that uh, he was. He said, now the runway is not real short. It's longer. And actually, it's exactly what I would have said as a, as a, as a uh, GM. I'm not, and he kept stressing, which is true. He didn't make the trade just for one year. But he said, when an opportunity like that comes along, I asked Kobe, I said, well, what about trade? They start going, we want the pick in 25, in 27, in 29. He goes, I could give you a long ex explanation, but he looks at, Donovan Mitchell goes, I'm sitting next to one of the best basketball players in the world, and I had a chance to get him and put him in without giving up my core guys. So I was willing to pay that price. And they did. It's it's going to be a fun season. I think Cavs fans are really jacked up for this. So, All right, Terry, your Faith in You column this week, it's going to be on Cleveland.com on Saturday morning and in Sunday's Plain Dealer. You kind of, and I hear people do this every once in a while, people who kind of blame their parents for stuff in their own lives. And not to say that there aren't times when you, you know, your parents probably are, should be held accountable or whatever you want to call it for something that happened. But a lot of people do this as a matter of habit or routine. And you kind of get into 
why that's not always a good thing. And sometimes it's just kind of something, a crutch for people to lean on. Why don't you discuss that? Yeah, the disclaimer is, look, if you've been sexually abused or beat or grew up in a home where, like, I had uh, one one woman I know. I mean, her mother was in and out of uh, uh, mental institutions. And she's, I'll tell you, she's fought through it. But that's real baggage. And then she ended up in foster homes and that. Uh, another person I know, you know, alcoholism. You know, so when you have all that going on, this does, I'm not talking about there because that requires counseling and a lot of stuff uh, to deal with that family background. But just the general, you know, jerkiness in families and acting as if this just takes your whole life down a road that is absolutely hopeless, is that's just silly. And I think the bottom line, Bob, uh, I talked to Father Bob Steck from uh, St. Ambrose in uh, Brunswick. And he talked about, you know, you're allowed to choose decisions. By the way, I, when I called him with this, he goes, it's unbelievable. I've had so many discussions the last few weeks with people just going through their whole parents and acting like they were the worst parents in the world. And you really listen to them. And it's like, you know, like the old Tommy Smothers, Dickie Smothers thing. Well, mom liked you best as opposed to this or, you know, that person didn't have a curfew and I, I had the curfew. You know, just stuff like that. It's like you're 40 years old. Give it up. But one of the things that came from this discussion, though, David, is we should learn to judge our parents in the same way we would want our kids to judge us. You know, in other words, with grace and understanding, take a big picture look at it rather than micro, put everything under the microscope. And I just think people would be happier. Yeah, you know, my prison ministry thing over all the years, 90% of the guys in there that we dealt with, they didn't know where their father was. I had three different times, literally in, in jail ministry things, where guys showed up in our, our, our jail ministry meetings, David, and as a father and son, they didn't even know they were in the same prison. Three times in the 20 years. So that's... Now, that's a problem. <laughs> but the fact that your sister got the nice car and you didn't is not the problem. And also, just look at people and judge them as you would want to judge. Any of us have ever been parents, grandparents, or uh, adult guardians. You know it's hard to raise kids. And you sit up at night going, am I doing the right thing? And then you remember your parents probably did the exact same thing emotions that you endure. So that's what the column's about. Well, and also, Terry, when you're a kid, and again, taking away all the stuff you talked about before about alcoholism and all the things that are really destructive, but um, a lot of times your parents are going through things personally yes. that you don't know about. And, and, and they might, their attention might be diverted because maybe they have a brother or sister who's having trouble and they can't pay as much attention to you. And we never know that stuff as kids. No. And no, I think you, you're right. I think we need to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're doing the best they can. Yeah. For, you know, for most parents, I think they, they're doing the best they can. Yeah, and, and I tell you, and then it takes some burden off of us. Like, just let the parents, I mean, you want to move forward. And I really believe that's one of the things, the old give it to God thing. You know, maybe talk to a, a pastor or a counselor about that and just and, and let, have them challenge you a little bit too. And are you really too hung up on this? All right. Well, find that column this weekend. Uh, again, Terry writes a faith in you column every weekend, and, and it's always kind of relevant to my life. I know when I read it. So check it out. I think you will enjoy this week's as you do every week. So, all right, Terry, we got a lot of Hey Terry questions, and I really appreciate everybody sending these in. If you want to get a question to us, you can send it to Terry on his Facebook page. Another way to do it, you can send it to sports at cleveland.com. I'll see it. I'll grab it. I'll write you back, and we'll try and get it on the podcast. So the first one is from Dale Dumick from Fairlawn, Ohio, and he says, Hey, Terry, why is Miles Straw still starting? He's batting 200, and defensively, he's just okay. I don't know that I agree with that. but That's stats ridiculous. Show, stats show he isn't even in the top 10 of decent. I don't know where that stat came no, from. No, um, he's like number one. Let me finish the question, and, yeah. and then we'll get into it. Um, one sorry. person wrote that his $25 million contract has clauses for a certain amount of playing time and can't be sent to the minors. Makes sense since there isn't one reason. Why does he keep playing? Terry, I, I think his defensive stats show he's one of the best defensive outfielders, and he takes away a lot of runs. But um, anyway, 
207. He's betting. He was betting 207 going into today's game. I think he was two for three last night in Tuesday night's game. Miles Straw, where do you stand with him and how they should be using him down the stretch? Well, I believe he he's, he's a 250 career hitter. So I just think this year is a bit of an aberration. Um, he's an elite defensive center fielder. Terry Francona believes you have to have elite defense at catching center field and, you know, middle infield, he'll give a little bit on there. For example, like, you know, Ahmad Rosario's average at short, but he hits, it's there. But he just thinks that catching in center field, um, he wants that elite defense. Now, if he keeps hitting 207 or whatever, then you could look at that down the line. But I, I'm just – this what they're doing is working. That's the other bottom line. How they're playing right now, it's working. All right, yeah, Dale. Thanks for the question. I wasn't trying to shut down your thing there. I just kind of got stuck on the defensive part of yeah. it there. So thanks the, for sending. I that mean, in. it's legit to watch. I mean, it's painful to watch him because he he just hits the ball so soft. I agree on that. You know, he doesn't strike up out a ton, but there's just a lot of pop ups, a lot of weak grounders. I don't know what happened to where he used to hit those line drives to right and right center. Um, now, he's been hurt a little bit by shifts, too, because if you look, they almost play him like a right, a left-handed pull hitter. So maybe that'll help him. And one annoying thing about him, he should be a good bunter, but he's not. Yeah, especially at the bottom of the lineup, you could really use a good yeah. punter. And he there, could so. run. All right, this one is from longtime friend of the podcast, Terry Jack in Erie. He says, we as Indians and Guardians fans haven't really appreciated division titles. After 95, the Indians, that were they were expected to win, probably appreciated a little bit in 07 and 16. He says, I don't know if we'll make it to the finish line, but if we do, Tito needs an immediate, not next year, an immediate ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> do you agree? So what do you think about Cleveland fans appreciating division titles true what do you think about what jack says at least in baseball they don't i mean the standard for the guardians has become win the world series i guess because they haven't won it since 48 it doesn't matter that this is going to be their ninth winning season the last 10 years and hopefully their sixth trip to the playoffs in that span Um, although the i guess if the purists do get it and it's you know, they're fun to watch and that. So but I agree. They just, they just don't seem to care. All right. Another one from a longtime friend of the podcast, Terry Paul Cosgrove from Stowe. He says, I don't understand why the guardians didn't bring up Bo Naylor when the roster was expanded. I realize they want to keep their prospects playing rather than sitting on the bench here. But in years past, the AAA season would already be over and development for the year would have been completed. It's so painful to watch Maley and Hedges trying to hit. They always seem to be coming to bat with men on base and predictably killing the rally. The bottom of the order is a dead zone. Um, so he, he says Naylor brings a lot of things as a lefty, compliment the two right-handed hitting catchers. Um, what do you think about why they didn't bring up Bo Naylor? And just one thing real quick, the rosters, you know, back before the last couple of years, the rosters used to go to 40 in September, and you'd have a full dugout you'd be putting guys in left and right that's not the case anymore right now terry right yeah it's only 28 that's part of the mm-hmm. reason the other is luke mayley sitting 280 since the all-star break um and hedges is all the way up to 215 since the all-star break i just think they decided we're going to go with those two guys they like how they handled pitching go back to what i said before about uh how francona views it naylor is going to be the catcher next year you know, maybe Naylor and Hedges or Naylor and Maley, something like that. But they just decide, just like Will Brennan, they decide to keep him down there and go with the other outfielders. They brought up Benson, remember, before Brennan there. So they're able to, to keep those two things. But uh, the nice thing is that uh, I didn't know if Bo, Bo Naylor would hit because if you look at his stats before this year, he didn't. Well, he has. And – so we may have the Naylor brothers next year. He doesn't, by the way, beat his chest quite as hard as his brother. Yeah, and I get what, you know, that question from Paul and the one from Dale about Miles Straw. Like, yeah. I get it. You're watching a game, and they get to the bottom of the lineup, and you know there's a couple of almost sure outs coming. But uh, I wanted to mention, Terry, I heard Carl Willis today on the radio, uh, and he was asked about this, and he said he wouldn't trade Maley and Hedges for any other two catchers in the majors. 
he, they love the way these guys work with the pitching staff. And he said, he, he said he wouldn't trade him for anybody. Well, which I thought a, was really telling. It's a smart thing to say, but I'm sure there's somebody he would trade him for. But the, the point <laughs> is you, you back your guys. But the other point that he's correct on is just the way they handle the staff. I mean, Francona is so adamant on that because the pitchers are younger too. That I mean, right now you could watch. There are times you literally see Hedges dragging a pitcher through an inning. You know, with one of these kids they just brought up, and you know, I just or dealing with all the eccentricities of even Karen Check, and you can see how the pitchers really do. Mainly some, but really Hedges, they grab onto him. You know, he's their guy. And I remember when. Cleveland made that big trade. And back then they had Roberto Perez and Hedges was part of that deal with all the other guys. And I said to Chris Antonin, well, why did you take Hedges in this? He, I said, he's, he's a terrible hitter. He says, he's our kind of catcher. You wait till you see him. He blocks balls. He, he could throw out guys. He's great with the staff. He brings the intangibles that Tito wants. And see, that's where, by the way, Maybe analytics would say something else, but Tito on there said, no, no, no. I want this catcher to be a certain way back there, and I'll live with him making outs because I think he gets me more outs when I'm watching him with my young pitching staff because he knew here you're not going to have an older, high-paid staff. You're not. These guys are either going to sign an extension like Kluber and and Carrasco did, or they're going to be traded. But I'm never going to have like four 30-year-olds in my rotation that uh, you know are, are 12 to 15 game winners. That's not going to happen here. Yeah, and Hedges had a nice sacrifice bunt today. Uh, He's got nine on. sacrifice bunts. Yeah. So yeah. there so you he, are. He can't, you he want, can't get a bunt. People want bunters. He can bunt. How's that? <laughs> All right, Terry, running a little bit oh, long. I have one. I, I, want... I have <laughs> to. You know, uh, Miss Thompson, our favorite. Caitlin Thompson, or Kathleen Thompson, rather, our, one of our favorites. She she has texted me twice. She's or emailed me twice. She's worried about the Cavs small forward after the trade. Who's it going to be? I asked J.B. Bickerstaff who's it going to be. He said we're going to work on that later. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> you got Isaac Okoro. You got Chetty Osman. I actually was talking a little bit afterwards to Sidney Lowe, one of the assistants. I brought that up, and we got on the big lineup thing. He said, now, where it wouldn't start this or whatever. He said, everybody's ignoring Dean Wade. He said, he had some really nice moments for us when we went big with him. So, Kathleen, the answer is they don't have the answer yet, but they mentioned a whole bunch of guys. All right. The quest continues. So, all right, we're running a little long, Terry. Uh, this one is from Andrew in Glen Allen, Virginia. And he says, hey, Terry, I enjoy the Terry's Talking podcast thoroughly. He said, here are some of my scribbles. He's stealing your, your line, Terry. From the Browns-Panthers game, he says the combination of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt reminds me of the Ernest Biner-Kevin Mack combination. During some of the Browns' glory years in Chubb, you have the quickness and elusiveness of Biner. Hunt is just a monster out there, and like Mack, to some degree, invites contact. So there's one thing. I can't get to all this, Andrew. But By the, the way, want... these yeah. guys are better than Mack and Biner. They're better. Nick Chubb, I'm not saying all the time, but there are certain runs and I'm old enough to say that. And I said it, uh, I was sitting next to Dan Lobby at the game and the Mary Kay. And I said, that's a Jim Brown type of run. Whoa, really? Yes, because how big he is and strong. And you notice how he has a different gear and the patience that he shows. There was one, remember, he kind of leapt over these bodies on the ground. And that, you just don't think a guy could do like that. So, and this no disrespect to Biner and, um, and, and yeah. Kevin Mack, but this guy is in a whole other, and by the way, Andalinski coming up with all the tackles he's breaking and everything else. So, Well, and real quick, Terry, I happened to notice, and I was mentioning this when I was watching the game here at home, uh, when I was rewatching it, uh, Chubb is running out of bounds at the end of runs. And, but he's not doing it to 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 avoid contact. He's I mean, he's kind of doing it smartly, where he's not giving up yardage. Yeah. But he's not absorbing extra hits, and I think it's really smart of him 
for longevity's sake and the amount of carries he's going to get. Like if there's extra yards, he's putting his head down and he's going to get them. But if he if he's got two guys closing in on him on the sideline, he's ducking out right at right the perfect spot. And I, I didn't notice him doing that as much before, and that might be something new that he's trying to do to I bet that's ease stunt, the wear and tear. But... Probably the Stump Mitchell influence. You know, he's a great running backs coach, Stump Mitchell. Yeah. And who played a long time in the NFL. So I bet he did. It's kind of like you really don't want your outfitters running into the wall all the time. You just Unless it's don't. the World Series. Yes. Yeah, yeah big games. That, you know, now, as, this, as the season goes on a little more for the Guardians – they could, you may do it. It's just like the Guardians told, and stick with me, Michael Brantley back in the so will you stop diving for all these balls and running into walls? Remember, he kept getting hurt there for a while. We need you to go hit 300. If you play it on a bounce, and th- it's a single. You'll get it back at the plate. Well, it's the same thing here. If you're just going to go run into two guys to get an extra yard and get your head bashed in and get a concussion, just step out of bounds. Now, it's fourth and one, and we're, there's two minutes to go. That's a different story. All right, I didn't get through all of Andrew's question. He wanted to say, uh, where was David Bell in the Panthers game? Zero receptions. Uh, I don't you've know. Been out, you've, been, you've been looking forward to seeing David Bell. I know, he's Bell. my guy. He's probably was out there, so I don't know. So... We'd have to look and see if he was open and yeah. just didn't get targeted or if he was having yeah. trouble getting separation. So thanks for that question, Andrew. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of it. Uh, you had a lot of good points here. Um, and just you, you closed with saying you're glad the Browns are 1-0. And that doesn't happen very often. So, <laughs> um, All right, B- Bob B. from Akron, I, I'm going to hold your question until next week. It's about uh, the Mitchell trade. And we can, we can have, we'll have time to get in on that next week. So that's it, Terry. I think that'll do it for us. Um, we went a little bit long, but that's okay. Well, in honor of Wes Levine, who was honored this weekend, of all the podcasts we've ever done, what is it, David? This is the most recent. <laughs> this is the most recent. Uh, you got a how come quickie for us before we go? No, that was we... it. Yeah, we don't. We I don't think we should. We should retire how come quickies because nobody will ever do them. But like we may week, grab so. that just to say we may end our podcast honoring Wes Levine that way. So that's a fine way to end it. We, uh, we miss you less. We'll catch you next week. And uh, thanks for listening. We appreciate everybody who listens and sends in questions. We will catch you next week. Uh, Terry is talking.